I asked Danny in the first service if he was giving me a hint. You know, a song about an hour of prayer, so we're going to have an hour lesson on prayer. Is that okay with everybody? Maybe not. Okay. I do want to thank Danny and the rest of the elders for allowing me a chance to preach this morning. Uh, Spencer's out today, as you know, and uh, he kind of tricked us on this one. He started this series, and then he tells us he's going to be gone for part of the series. And so he asked specifically, he asked if one of us would preach on two of the lessons. One of them is about prayer, and the other one is about the Lord's Supper. And I told you last time, you know, I always want to try to be ready. I always want to volunteer. And so I have this sermon I've been working on. Then he gives me a subject, and i got to start from scratch anyway. So it doesn't matter. So uh, I do want to thank, uh, there are a lot of people here you may not recognize, but I've got a lot of family here today. Thank you for coming. I'm humbled that you came. Uh, honored to speak anytime. Humbled to share God's Word. But thank you all. Great to see you. It's encouraging. So our lesson, uh, it's about, Paul, you got this or do I? Oh, that's beautiful. What are we doing during public prayer? And Spencer wanted us to address it in terms of what the prayer leader does and then also what the rest of us are supposed to be doing while he's leading the prayer. Now, you're going to love this. So I just said, here, here it is. And, and church, you need to have five points. I really only had four, so I used one twice. So you bow your head, close your eyes, you listen. No, no, you really listen. Then you say amen. So that's all it is. Thank you. Uh, Danny, you got some more songs? Uh, Oh, well, we got a little more time. I guess we should move to the next slide and talk some more, right, Paul? Okay. Well, that was blank. Um, how does this work? Okay. So I did look up the Greek word. Some of you are fascinated by the study of Greek, and I don't want to dwell on it, but the word is prosuchomai, and when it's used, it's describing where you're addressing something toward, in this case, toward God, and it's you're asking or you have a wish that you're trying to get across to him. And you find it in the New Testament, uh, in the Greek, it's listed 86 times. And in those instances, it's where people are talking to God, almost their intimate discussion with God. And so I thought, well, the next thing I'll do, I'll give you some Greek, so I'll give you some trivia next. Uh, when is the first time that we read about prayer? Uh, now, you know the story of John. It is so ironic that you went to Cain and Abel because this falls in right after Cain and Abel. Uh, the story of their other son, Seth. And in chapter 4, verse 26, the end of that chapter, Seth had a son. His name was Enosh. And it says, this is when men began to call on the name of the Lord. This is a group thing. This is prayer. So I thought, well, we're going to dig a little more in the Old Testament. You like Old Testament like uh, Randy Simpkins. You really love the Old Testament. And so I found an example of a public prayer. And I guess I should back up. Boys, I asked the teenagers. I said, I'm going to challenge you. There's a story in the Old Testament where someone uttered a prayer in a large setting, a whole lot of people around, and it seemed as if nobody listened. And that's the story we find in 1 Kings chapter 28, verse 37. It's Elijah on Mount Carmel. Did you get that? Any of you would have known that? I talked to Cameron Salo. He was in early church, and he said he was close. I asked others of you, and you know the only one that finally narrowed it down and found it? It was Spencer Furby. I gave him a couple little hints, but uh, this story we don't talk about much in terms of prayer, but I hope it fits. It fit in my mind. So he uttered this prayer, and here's what he said. It's in verse 37. He says, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Wow, powerful prayer. 
You remember the story? You all know the story about Elijah on Mount Carmel and there were, the people were worshiping Baal at the time. He had asked them before that, he said, you gotta choose. You're either gonna worship God or you're gonna worship Baal. You know what they said to him? We find it verse 21, it says they answered him nothing. So there's already a precedent when Elijah speaks, they don't pay attention, they don't listen, they don't answer. He was alone. There were 450 prophets of Baal that he was up against that day. He felt alone, but he had God. And so as you read the story, you read in verse 23 and even in verse 25 where he offers this challenge. God had given him a challenge to offer to the Baal prophets. He said, bring us a couple of bulls. You pick the one you want, cut it up into pieces, lay it on the wood. And he says, something weird here. He says, put no fire under it. Why would he say that? This is, this is a challenge to where your God or gods were supposed to light the fire, but he says, put no fire under it. Why would he say that? Should be obvious, right? So as I'm getting ready for this lesson, I, I tried to study and read and Googled everything, and I found this story, it was really neat. It said that evidently the prophets of Baal were known to trick people. And, and I don't know, we don't find a record of this in the Bible, but it described it as if they would try this sacrificial thing and what they would do is they would set somebody under the altar. Huh, that's kind of weird. Under the altar, I don't know how they did it. Did they have a tunnel? Did they have a cavity under there? I don't know how. But evidently they could light that fire from beneath and it worked. Elijah says, put no fire under it. Some, in the story I read when I was Googling it, it said some suggest that even they tried it this time because they had advance notice. They had warning on it. It's like they tried it this time and the story even went that maybe that person was suffocated, unable to complete their task of cheating to light the fire. Kind of interesting. Don't know if it was real, but it's kind of interesting. He tells them, put no fire under it. He tells them to call on your gods to ignite the sacrifice. So we got the challenge. We know what it is. But wait, wait. Who's Baal? We know, right? Baal was a, a Canaanite god. Let me go through the prayer. I, I gave you this example. I Googled this and found it too. And I did white out part of it because I didn't think it was appropriate. But if you look at that image on the left-hand side, you see the head and the horns of a bull. If you look on the other side, you see a column that has fire. How ironic that God has chosen to challenge Baal on his home turf. That's supposedly what Baal does. That's who he supposedly is. Uh, one of his symbols and other images I saw was lightning. He was the God of fertility, the God of sun, the God of nature, the God of weather, the God of storms, supposedly. So, our God, Elijah said, answers by fire. And it was proven true. And so as the day progressed, the day begins and the prophets of Baal start gathering around their altar. Uh, they call out to Baal from morning till noon, our Bibles tell us. It reached the point where they'd begun to get a little frantic. So they started leaping, they started dancing, they started going through gyrations to try to get Baal to do something. Probably trying to get that guy underneath there to do something, but it didn't work. <coughs> Elijah mocked him. He made fun of him. Did you blame him? He said, uh, won't you holler a little louder? Maybe he'll hear you if you holler a little louder. And he went through this list of things. He said, maybe Baal's just meditating. Maybe he's just, uh, one version or one uh, story I read about this, uh, Elijah said, maybe he's busy. 
Well, uh, that euphemism found in that old text may even describe that he was just gone to the restroom. Isn't that quite a way to jab him about that? Maybe he's gone on a journey. Maybe he's just sleeping. Maybe if you get really, really loud, Baal will wake up. Didn't work. And so they reached the point they were so obsessed with trying to do it. One of the things in their practices, they cut themselves. And, you know, they had this, this beast up on the altar and they had killed it. They had cut it so there was the blood of the bull. And they had their own blood that was scattered on the ground around their altar. Yet nothing worked. And so we reach the latter part of the day. It's time for the evening sacrifice. And Elijah is ready at this point. And it's ironic when you, when you try to connect the Old Testament and the New Testament. In, in the evening sacrifice, what were they supposed to offer? A lamb. A lamb that was without spot. A lamb that was out without blemish. And it burned that night. See the link to Jesus? He was our lamb. He was without blemish. He died about the same time of the day as they offered their evening sacrifice. Elijah knew that it was time, and he tried to engage him. And so what he did, if you look in the Bible, it's, he said, come near to me. He wanted them to be there, wanted them to be a part of it. It's likely he even needed some help. I wonder what they were doing. Can you imagine if you sat on top of a mountain all day long waiting on a fire that didn't come and watched craziness? You know, there, there's a point to where your attention span just leaves, and I'm conscious of that, so I'm going to hurry. But after about 20 minutes, you're done. And then sometimes you wake back up and you go again, but what do you think they were doing? Uh, I've got another silly slide that I put up here, if it'll show. Some of them may have had their own little bail idol. I found where they had those, like the pocket size you can carry it with you. We'll talk about that a little more later. Um, I would suspect they were ignoring him again. I would suspect some were probably even sleeping. Now, can you hear them? If you're one of those people and you've watched this nonsense all day and Elijah walks up there and he's going to address the crowd, can you hear them? Oh, man, he's asked us a question earlier today. He's given us a hard time because we like Baal. Oh, what's up with that? He's been preaching with us preaching at us, and now he's offering a prayer, and he's talking about us. We're sitting right here, and he's talking about us. We're sitting right here. Elijah engaged them, but he also went about the point of making preparations the right way. Spencer's taught us in some of his lessons about how we go back and follow the pattern, the prescription, what God has told us we should do, and do it in the right way. There was a right way to offer this sacrifice. Elijah was very specific in what he did. And if you go back to Leviticus chapter 1, there are rules. There are things that you're supposed to follow when you offer a sacrifice. It tells you specifically, if you've got this animal you're going to offer, there's a place around that altar where you, you initially kill it. That's where you cut it. That's where the blood falls by the altar. He tells them exactly how to do that. He tells them you have to skin it. He tells you how you have to cut it into pieces. He tells them how you have to wash it to be absolutely sure that it's done in the right way. You think Isaiah, uh, Elijah did that? First thing he did, though, was he grabbed 12 stones. The significance of those stones is those represented the tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob. Then he put wood on it. Then he went through this process of sacrificing the item and cutting it up and putting it on the altar. They were also told they had to burn the entire animal. I wonder what the Baal prophets did. You think they followed this routine? Likely not. Then the curveball comes in. There's nothing in Leviticus about digging a trench that I saw. Told him to dig a trench around it. I wonder if there's more to that story too. 
dug the trench around it. He said, go get water, get four pots of water. Do, do you see any small irony in the fact that they had four pots of water that they poured on it and that they came back and did it two more times? Well, another link to Jesus. Did, didn't he use pots of water for his first miracle? Didn't he turn that into wine? I just think it's ironic. I, I wonder if the pots were the same size. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, and I read reference after reference after reference describing how much water there was. And some said a little, some said a lot. Maybe as much as in this baptistry back here. I don't know. But Randy, we know there was enough water to cover that altar. We know there was enough water to fill the trench around it. And back to that other historical story, we know there was probably enough water that if you'd have been under there, you'd have been gurgling. <laughs> you would have drowned. So... The rest of the story you all studied in your Bible classes, you know that fire came down from heaven and it consumed the sacrifice. But no, it tells us more. It didn't just consume the sacrifice. It burnt every ounce, every stick of wood. It burnt the stones. There was so much fire that it describes it as it licked up the water. It's like it was fuel. That's the kind of fire that our God sent. How did he do it? Don't you wish you were there? Was it a lightning bolt like you see in most of your pictures in the Bible that just came down and hit that altar? Did God just snap his fingers and poof, it was burning? We don't know, but we know that it consumed. It was so much fire. It was lots of fire. It was an uncommon amount of fire. Have you ever been close to a bonfire where it's just so hot you can't stand to be there? You, you start backing away. You know the story about the guys that threw them in the, in the, line, in the, the fiery furnace? and they couldn't get close to it, it killed them, it was so hot. I wonder how hot this fire was. Could they tell how hot it was? Now, if we're the group of people that's sitting around that day and we've been bored all day long and we see this, what does it do to us? You've been worshiping this God that's the God of fire, the God of lightning, the God of bulls. He didn't do anything. And this God of Elijah, who used to be your God, did such a demonstrative effect of his power that you saw would you be listening to him now yes likely you would what did they do in verse 39 it says the people fell on their faces they were so stunned by this so in awe of this so in in tune with what, that there was a god there they fell on their faces and the words they said collectively everybody the lord he is god the lord he is god were they listening not only were they listening, they were praying in unison. You think their hearts got changed? They got turned like Elijah asked? Yes, most definitely. So, great Bible story, right? You've heard it all your life. It's about a victory. God has a victory over Baal, right? That's how we teach it, isn't it? It's about Elijah, who was one man who served God and, and trusted God and had faith in God, and he stood against great religious opposition. That's how we teach it, right? We never really teach it about prayer, do we, Mitchell? Never. Do you think maybe there's some lessons about prayer we can draw from it here? I think so. Let's look and see. Usually, if you're leading prayer and worship, uh, Steve, uh, excellent job leading our prayer this morning. If I can find Steve, where did Steve go? There he is, okay. The things that Steve did today, and I wish I'd had a recording and I could play it back because almost everything he did was right out of the script of this lesson in terms of how you should lead a public prayer. And, and most of you guys here do, it's incredible. But you know well in advance if you're gonna be leading the prayer, usually. We've got a list, they send an email out or they send you a, a letter, and you know when you're gonna be the guy to lead prayer. 
Elijah knew that day when he walked onto that setting that he had a prayer to offer to God. Uh, and what he did is he was getting ready to lead that prayer. This is, we're going to talk now about what the prayer leaders should be doing as they lead the prayer. He knew that he was addressing a group, probably many more than we have here. The first step was to get them closer, to get them where they could hear. Uh, 450 prophets of Baal, they probably didn't walk over. God's people probably did. But if you're going to lead a prayer, Steve, today we can cheat. We've got a microphone. We can talk into that. But if I'm out here and I turn my microphone off and I'm trying to talk to you, can you hear me at the back? Sorry. Clinton, I need to yell super loud for you to be able to hear me back there. Likely Isaiah, uh, I keep saying it, Elijah did. He had to get their attention. He had to want them to hear what God was saying through him. The next thing you do if you're going to offer a public prayer is you have to find a way to engage the people that will be listening. Uh, Steve said, let's bow together in prayer. Most men do that when they get up to lead that. But you find some way. Some just simply say, let's all pray together. But you have to engage them. Elijah said, come near. He wanted them to be close. And we know the reason partly that they were so close is he would have needed assistance. If you have a bull, Gunner, you could probably kill a bull and skin it all by yourself and put it on the altar, but I wouldn't be able to. I would need some help. And so likely he needed somebody to volunteer to help him get that done. They, there weren't 450 of his people. When we lead prayer, we have to have the assistance of everybody that's in the room too. We want them to bow with us. We want them to pray together with us. We want everybody to join in prayer. And we're all doing this together. It's not, if I'm leading the prayer, it's not just me. Uh, I tell the kids when I teach this class that, you know, I don't go and pray about my dog because I'm worried about my dog. Y'all don't care about my dog. Some of you might. Uh, I know, uh, <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> but you pray about things that matter to the entire body that everyone should care about. Elijah's prayer was one of those prayers that mattered to everybody that was there. And ultimately it led to unifying everybody that was there. The next thing he did is he made preparations. We talked about that and I won't go into it in depth, but he was very meticulous in following what God said to do that was right in his sacrifice. Just as we should be meticulous when we get ready to offer a prayer, we should humbly accept the role of the prayer leader. Not something we do out of arrogance, out of confidence, out of brashness, but more about the chance that we have to serve in a capacity that's greatly important. You know, when you get a second to, to stand up here in front of the group, even if you talk for a minute, it should be something that you're preparing to do. Uh, and I can't tell you how many hours that I spent trying to get ready for this lesson, but it was a lot. Because th these words that, that are coming from here are coming, there's, there's an obligation, there's a responsibility that they have to be right. I don't want to misstep, and if I do, please correct me. But Elijah did everything to prepare to get it right. And one of the things that you do first is you spend personal time in prayer. You can't pray effectively leading a group unless you're praying personally. You have to have that connection. You have to have that relationship to God. Uh, Spencer talked one time about some of our prayer leaders and how we need to get a microphone to help some of the men that can't really get up here to lead a prayer. And he used an example of Jim Craft. And when Mr. Craft got up here to lead a prayer, I'm telling you, super powerful prayer. And it was so obvious when you hear him speak that he had that connection with God. You knew where he was coming from and you knew that he and God were, were on the same wavelength. And you would listen to everything that he had to say. Critically important that we choose our words wisely. Critically important that we find a way to connect the prayer 
our thoughts with those that are listening. The next thing we do is we, we should plan. And you knew eventually I would get to this. Uh, we read the Lord's Prayer, how he taught people to pray. And that's not necessarily about leading a public prayer as much as it is about just praying in general. But it does set a good pattern, a good semblance of how you should follow to lead prayer. Uh, when you start a prayer, let's go to the next slide here. When you start a prayer, you should address God. Jesus teaches to do that by saying, Our Father. Elijah addressed God by calling the Lord God of Abraham. There should be a level of reverence, a level of servanthood. Uh, Elijah said in his humility, he said, I am your servant when he had his prayer. We should express praise. Oh, that's the hard part, isn't it? Steve, excellent job in the praise that you offered that you led us in where you were praising God and we were joining right in in those thoughts of how you see God and how we should see God as well. It's hard to do. How do we know what to say to God in praise? You know, typically we're really good at asking him for stuff. We're really good at thanking him for stuff, but that praise piece is a little harder to come up with. Doesn't matter how you do it. Um, I know we had a guy that, that led prayers here, and sometimes he would use words out of a song, a praise song. He would use those in his prayer. They fit. They made sense. You can use scripture. You can use your own words, but some form of praise should be a part of every, every public prayer. When we pray, we should be receptive or open to God's will. We want his will to be done, and when we address things to him, you ought to really start that way. Early in the prayer, before you start asking him for stuff, Put it in context if you want what God wants. And then after that, the list is kind of open. Jesus shows some examples about how we should do it. We can, we can request things of God. We can thank him for our food, talk to him about our food, ask him for forgiveness. But when you lead a public prayer in this group, we ought to think about things that are for the group, that the group needs, that are important to our body, to our congregation. When you're leading a prayer for everyone, it's not teaching a class. It's not preaching a sermon. It's trying to find some way to present thoughts to God on behalf of everyone. It should be genuine. It should be heartfelt. It should be outpouring in such a way that you pull everybody into it. Just reel them into that prayer and it all goes up together. And I guess the last thing we see in Elijah as he was able to pray in front of this group, not only did he plan, but he also practiced we see in his life how he spent so much time in communication with God. Uh, we read stories earlier on about him where God told him to predict a drought. They were in a drought for three and a half years. Uh, right before this, matter of fact, which makes you wonder, Jesse Hager caught me after church, the early service, and he said, where'd they get the water? They're in a drought, Jeff. And if I knew that, I would be smarter than y'all. But it, I don't know. We don't know for sure, but he got the water. But anyhow, he talked to God. God told him to predict a drought. It happened. God told him to go hide in the wilderness. God told him he would send ravens to feed him, which they fed him bread and meat both day and night, twice a day. God told him to go stay with the widow. He went and stayed with the widow. He asked her for food. She had a little bit of flour. She had a little bit of oil. He said, make me a cake. She's like, I don't have much. He's like, do it. Don't worry about it. And he told her that flour would continue to replenish. That oil would not run dry. And that came true. The widow's son got to where she couldn't breathe, or where he couldn't breathe, and the boy died. Elijah had so much practice talking to God, he had to address God in that circumstance too, and he begged and he pleaded. He said, you know, I, I need this son of hers to come back to life, and God revived the son. A prayer leader should practice. A prayer, leader, 
Prayer leaders should have a strong track record of talking to God. He even describes it in his prayer. He said, I've done these things at your word. He knew of the word of God. Isn't there a connection to us when we pray to God's word? How we ought to be plugged into it as well to know what God wants us to know. So, how long do you pray? Not as long as this sermon. And I'm sorry, I'm already going too long. I'll be quick. Uh, How long do you pray? Elijah had a large public prayer in front of a huge group. And how long did he pray? One and a half verses. Perfectly adequate. It covered what needed covered. How long should we pray? Now, there's a lot of things we could address, but... You know, some of you have already noticed that I've talked too long until you're asleep. So you get those conditions with a prayer where you bow your head, you close your eyes, and you're already tired because you got up an hour early this morning. Gone. Out like a light. So you don't pray that long. How long should you pray? There's a neat verse in Ecclesiastes. uh, And I'll just read the last part of it. It says, For God is in heaven, and you here on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. It's okay to have short prayers. He'll hear them anyway. Matthew talks about, Matthew 6 talks about not using vain repetitions in our prayers. He criticizes in chapter 23 about making long prayers with the pretense of being super righteous. When you pray, it's okay to use your own words too. What's what's the famous expression we've heard in prayer all our lives? Guide, guard, and direct, right? Is anything wrong with that? No. I mean, those are appropriate words. I will tell you that sometimes if we say it too much and say the same thing, maybe it loses sensitivity in our mind. And we don't really think, what does it mean to guide us? What does it mean to guard us? What does it mean to direct us? And so if you're going to offer that in a prayer, you ought to kind of take a step back and think about what those words are before you say them. We went to Challenge Youth Conference in Dallas. Kids, y'all remember that? Do you remember the guy that uh, was kind of organizing the the deal and he got up and he prayed twice during the conference he prayed do you remember what he said you know it's okay to copy that expression God guard and direct this guy said and it was it was great he was talking to God very specifically for us and he said I can't wait to see you I was amazed you know I hadn't thought of it that way but that's kind of our mindset should be our mindset too so I'm copying that I'm using that in my prayer. I want God to know that I want to see him someday and I can't wait. So it's okay to do that. Okay, so what should the people do? We know what the prayer leader is supposed to do. And I I used a lot of P words and I'm sorry about that. But the first one that I came up with was posture. And you know, they teach you to sit up straight in your chair and all that stuff. But when you pray, it's a different mindset. And it doesn't have to be a physical posture as much as it needs to be a spiritual or emotional posture. But what we do is we typically bow our heads, right? Uh, To show subservience to God, right? So we bow our heads. In some places, they do more than that. And I'm not saying we should or we shouldn't, but have you ever gone to a a religious facility that's different than ours? Uh, I was describing in the early church, uh, I was actually standing by a pew, and you could look at the back of their pew and there was like a wooden device on a hinge and it would actually flip down and it had a little padding on it, it had a little carpet on it. And, and people, during their service in some way, they would hold the pew in front of them and lean down, kneel down on that to aid them in prayer. Some other religious facilities have a rail across the front that people will walk up to and pray. There's nothing wrong with that if you're praying and kneeling is a good thing. And, and you find a lot of that in the Bible where people kneel in prayer. 
Now our pews are a little close together. It'd be hard, Kyle, if I ask you to kneel right now, you'd probably bump your knee because it's so close, but it's okay to do that. I saw a TV commercial, you may remember it, where there were two religious leaders, totally different religious groups, and, and they were friends socially, and they bought each other gifts, uh, like a Christmas gift. And so they take the gift and they go home, and when they get home, it shows on the commercial, one of them's opening his box and it's a set of knee pads. And the other one gets home and he's opened his box, it's a set of knee pads. Do you need knee pads when you pray? Those guys probably had calluses on their knees because they spent so much time with that. But kneeling is good. Kneeling is good in God's eyes too. You find other examples where people would tear their clothes. They were just so overwrought in prayer. Find examples where they shaved their head before they prayed. You find an example right here in, that Elijah has where the people fell on the ground, fell on their faces. There's a neat passage of the attitude that God expects of us in prayer found in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. What God says, he says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. You know, Elijah's people didn't hear him. They weren't listening. They probably ignored him at first, but then they fell on their faces. Okay, now, if we're part of a prayer, another thing that we should do is participate. How do you do that? So Steve's up here praying. All of you are talking at the same time to participate. No. But you can a little, maybe in your mind, maybe under your breath, maybe you're, you're thinking the words he says and you're so in tune, so connected that you're saying those words to yourself in your mind. That's okay. It's okay to mentally repeat what he's saying. It's okay to join the leader in thought. You know, I have a friend at work that uh, I really value his opinion, but when I would go to talk to him, he was a head maintenance man of one of our plants, and I'd go talk to him, and it was really annoying because I'd talk to him and I'd ask him questions about, what should we do here? What do you think about this? And as I'm describing, maybe a piece of machinery, maybe a, an, an installation, as I would say words, sometimes he would finish my sentence. Isn't that weird? Sometimes as I was talking, I would, I would finish and I would say sentence, and he says sentence right after that. The same word, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Or is it? Because now that I look back at it, the words that I said mattered to him. And he wanted to hang on to them. He wanted to know them. He wanted to hear what I had to say. Wasn't worried about what he had to say. He wanted to make sure he understood, I suspect. In our prayers, we should be that way too. When our prayer leader is up here, we should try to hang on to those words. Try to cement those thoughts into our own minds and make them ours. One thing I do when Spencer preaches, and you're probably better at this than I am, do you ever try to predict where he's going? Uh, to predict his thought? And if you don't do that, I challenge you to try. Now, you, you really have to listen for this to work, but if he started on a lesson, uh, whatever the subject matter, I, I think to myself, what scripture is he going to refer to next? And so I'm flipping in my Bible. He's going to go to John 7. So I flip to John 7, and I'm waiting on him. And then when he does, it's so cool. Or whatever the thought is, if you're that in tune with what somebody's saying to you, you can almost predict that thought and be in line with where they're going to be. We can reach the point where we can predict and we think in unison. Now the other thing that people can do and people will do is we, uh, we forget to listen or we don't listen. We're like Elijah's people. 
How can that be us today? If a prayer is offered, how can you be like that? Yeah, it's 11.09 and somebody's praying this closing prayer. Where are we going to eat? Some of you have already asked the person beside you that question. I showed, I missed that example of the bail idol. I forgot to show that. Likely some of them were looking at their little bail idol. Do we have our own little idol that sometimes we might look at during prayer? You know, it vibrates in your pocket. Oh, there's a snap. I got to check that. Ooh, uh, something's happening on Twitter now. I got to clue in on that. Or maybe you just want to check your fantasy football score. Yeah. During a prayer? Can we be like that? Do you look at your clock thinking, he's already prayed for three and a half minutes. He should be done by now. Do you poke your neighbor, Joe? Do you give the guy beside you a little shot in the ribs to poke him and distract him from the prayer? We can't be like that or be like Elijah's people. Because when we're here, and grasp the gravity of this, okay? When we're here, when we are worshiping God, he expects us to worship him. He expects us to do it in a way that's acceptable to him. He wants your devotion. He wants to hear it from you, not from the prayer leader up front. He wants to hear it from you. God is the most powerful being in the entire universe. He deigns to come down here to this world with us and be a part of our worship service, and he wants you to be keyed in. He wants you to be clued in. He wants your entire attention. An example would be uh, when Samuel was a boy and, and Eli was in bed asleep and Samuel keeps hearing. And he thinks it's Eli and he runs to him, right? He says, what do you need? What do you need? Eli sends him back to bed and finally when he comes back, he says, listen, Samuel, that's not me calling you. That's God. And God is speaking to you. And so the next time he addresses you, you need to say, speak, God, for your servant listens. That should be our attitude in worship because God is engaging us and we should be engaging him as well. Ultimately, ultimately, Elijah's people listened and they participated and they responded. They responded together in prayer. All of them said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So that's really all I could see in this story about prayer, but it's so powerful if we think about how prayer goes with us. You know, the prayer leader, the, the points were that he should project, he should engage, he should prepare, should plan, and should practice. All of those things are the part of the prayer leader to do before he gets up here. And the people, all of us, we should have the right attitude, the right posture during the prayer. We should participate. We should listen. No, we should really listen. There's so much potential for power. Look around this room. How many people are in here today? Do you believe when you pray to God on your own at home, do you believe that God listens to you? Yes, okay. Do you believe that when there are 500 of us here and we're all praying the same thing together, you think he hears that? Do you think he listens to that? So much potential for power if our hearts are in tune and we're praying together. I read an article my mom shared with me found in uh, the Gospel Advocate, and it was by a guy named Neil Pollard, and he referenced the believer's prayer found in Acts chapter 4, and I'm not going to read it today, but I would encourage you to read it when you get home, because that prayer is perfectly acceptable, perfectly appropriate for us to, to offer again to God today. And one thing he says in that, he says, when we pray together, it gives us a sense of fellowship. It gives us a sense of joy. It even gives us a sense of shared confidence because maybe my prayer by itself is not good enough, but I got you and I got you and I got you. 
All together, our prayer has got to matter. If he hears one of us, imagine the impact of all of our hearts, all of our minds, focused together, speaking to him. All of us focused on the same thing. All of us bonded together in prayer. Elijah's prayer, while initially ignored, was ultimately heard. Last week, at the end of service, we had a prayer. You had your heads bowed. You had your eyes closed. There wasn't a dry eye in the house when we left. I heard people around me. I didn't want to look at them. I heard them stifling because I knew there were people that were so caught up in that prayer. We had a sister that was hurting. And every one of you were, were plugged in that prayer. You're like, what can I do? How can I help? How can I grab that burden? How can I carry that? How can I be a part of this prayer? Did you feel yourself during that prayer trying to help Spencer? The words he was saying, you were wanting to help those words come out. You were wanting them to be perfect. You were wanting them to fit. You were wanting us all to pray so well together. And I'm telling you, that was an excellent prayer. I don't think anybody in here could have done any better. That's how we should pray. Every time. And you know, there's a way we can do that. And to be part of a believer's prayer like that, you need to be a Christian. And if you're not a Christian today, now is a good time to get to where you're plugged in and praying with us. If you need to repent, if you need to be baptized, now is a good time to do that. Or if you need prayers in the church for any reason, please come while we stand, while we sing.